2: off Less work, more clean. Terms apply.
3: Greetings to you all. Welcome to episode 39. So glad you could join me on this very warm day indeed. I'm actually starting to feel a little bit thirsty now. What to drink?
1: Since the beginnings of history, people have enjoyed wine. Ages ago, our ancestors found that wine made any food taste better. It also makes me look prettier. Wine is a simple pleasure that anyone can enjoy. That is why Roma has devoted all its winemaking skill to producing wines of fine quality at a price that means you can enjoy them often.
3: My father will be pleased to hear that.
1: Don't feel that you need fine crystal or a special occasion to serve Roma wine.
3: Oh, don't worry about that. My father sometimes drinks it from his shoe to save on the washing up.
1: Next time you have a quick supper... Serve Roma wine in plain tumblers with your spaghetti or cold meats. Classy. And notice how much more enjoyment and zest it adds to the meal. Serve Roma wine often, cool or chilled. You'll quickly discover why Roma, R-O-M-A, Roma wines are America's largest selling wine.
3: Well, that's good to know. But before we get any more wine tips, I've just thought of something... How many lines from classic movies can be improved with sound effects?
4: Red, you go, where shall I go, what shall I do?
3: Frankly, my dear, I don't give a
0: Who are you then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody, AS2, what's that AS2? Angel, second class. (laughs) listen to them
2: children of the night
0: what music they
2: make! you know
4: you don't have to act with me steve you don't have to say anything and you don't have to do anything not a thing oh maybe just whistle you know how to whistle don't you steve you just put your lips together and blow
2: My mother f***ed you, my father f***ed you, my sister f***ed you, and I assure you, I f***ed you. But you don't understand, Osgood! I'm a man!
0: Oh Watson, the needle.
3: Answer, none. My mother thanks you. My father thanks you. My sister thanks you. And I assure you, I thank you. This week, I'd just like to say thank you to Michael O'Connor, to Ian Smith, to Nathaniel Goss, and to Joe O'Shaughnessy, who've each bought me a beer via the website. Beers that have slipped down smoothly and that have been much appreciated. So, thank you, gentlemen. I toss a hot Canterbury into your shopping bags. Canterbury. I'd also like to say thank you to those of you that have been getting in touch with movie suggestions for Leah, But most notably, to Jim Della Hunty, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, from California, who sent a whacking great list of films, along with the reasons why for each film. Thank you, Jim. And to everyone else. Keep them coming. Leah herself has actually been back in touch to say that she's very excited to be on the receiving end of your suggestions. So I'll give it another week or so and then send all of your suggestions to her. On behalf of Leah, then, open wide, because this one's fresh from the oven.
0: Hentenbury.
3: Aside from the thankings, I do just have two things to tell you about. Firstly, for those of you who'd like more of an inside track on things related to this show and the secret history of Hollywood, you can sign up for the mailing list over at attaboycloud.com. It's on the front page. Just scroll down until you see the very brief form. Enter your details, and I'll add you to the old list whereupon I shall send you updates from time to time. I actually have quite a cool competition coming up. And if you're on the mailing list, you'll have a better chance of winning. I'll explain why if you sign up. Secondly, I didn't want to do this, but after receiving advice from someone who knows far better than I do, I will actually be splitting Attaboy Clarence and The Secret History of Hollywood apart into two very separate shows. So from here on in, the specials will not be a part of Attaboy Clarence. They will only be featuring on The Secret History of Hollywood. This show will only feature the regular episodes from now on. So if you'd like to continue receiving the specials, you will need to subscribe to The Secret History of Hollywood in addition to this show. There are a few reasons behind this which are technical, financial and personal and far too boring to explain here. I am sorry for any inconvenience. Hopefully you won't mind subscribing to another podcast in addition to this one. Some of you may be subscribed to both already, in which case you're ahead of the curve, you happening trendsetter.
1: To every woman listening tonight, I want to say a special word about making every dinner or supper you serve taste better. You can serve Roma wine with any meal or any time in any kind of glass you wish. Serve it chilled. Try different kinds of Roma wine until you find those you enjoy most of all. I want to urge you to start serving Roma wine with your meals. It's simple, the cost is very, very little, and it works magic in making food more enjoyable. That's a good tip, everyone.
3: If the meal you've cooked tastes like crap, just give your guests plenty of wine.
1: The cost is mere pennies a glassful. But you'll find even a pickup supper tastes like a
3: banquet. Roma wine. The more you drink, the better the food will taste. Let me go. I don't wanna be your hero. I don't wanna be a big man. I just wanna fight with everyone else. Well, it's my birthday this week. Once again, I add another notch to the old timeline. July the 17th will mark the day that I grow another year older. But it just so happens that I share my birthday with that of my all-time favourite screen star.
0: Down.
3: I love many actors from the golden age. The list of names that I adore stretches long into the distance. But... James Cagney has the presidential suite in my heart. That's Cagney's face you can almost see on the secret history of Hollywood's artwork. We can things, secrets from our American dreams. There is something so otherworldly, so evocative, and so magical about James Cagney's screen performance. He played Tough Guys wise guys, romantic guys, dance guys and every other guy in between and it was always so effortless and so joyful. I could go into more about his life and times but I will refrain for now for one very good reason. My next special for The Secret History of Hollywood will be The Adventures of Alfred Hitchcock Part 3 but I am very, very pleased To be able to tell you that the following special, hopefully out by the end of this year and as yet untitled, will tell the entire story of the Warner Brothers gangster films. And obviously, James Cagney will be figuring rather largely in that story. For now, though, what I thought I'd do is tell you about three Cagney movies that you've probably seen already, but if you haven't, are definitely worth seeking out. First up is a film from 1933. Great year for Cagney, actually. This was also the year he starred in Footlight Parade and The Mayor of Hell. This is a breezy little comedy thriller called Lady Killer. So Cagney plays Dan Quigley, a low-level con man who, along with his gang, is making a nice living by robbing the rich and prosperous. However, one night, a burglary he's organised goes a little wrong and a butler is killed by one of Dan's gang. Because of the death, the police turn the heat up on the gang and Dan, along with the mob's Gal Friday Myra, played by Mae Clark, heads west to hide out and the pair find themselves in Los Angeles.
2: In way down east. This is unusual weather, sir. Mighty unusual weather.
1: Just a high fall. That's
4: all, huh? Yeah, I've read where it never rains out here, but they sometimes have nine or ten feet of (laughs) dew.
3: When Myra betrays Dan and runs off with his money, he finds himself broke and about to be turned out of the city on his ear for vagrancy. As he's pondering his next move, he finds himself being tailed by a mysterious man who turns out to have a rather unexpected reason for following Dan.
0: I'm for the National Studios in Hollywood. Oh yeah. We're looking for types, new faces, tough guys for a gangster picture. Do you want a job? Doing what? Acting in pictures.
2: Oh, yeah, are trying to rip. Do you want it or don't you? Well, what's in it? Three bucks a day and a box
0: lunch. I'm on. Okay, be at the National Studios at seven o'clock tomorrow morning. Give this slip to the casting director. Now listen. Don't change your clothes. Don't shave. Don't wash. Leave that pan just as it is. I mean, I mustn't dial up.
2: That's it.
3: Well, Dan quickly rises through the ranks at the studio, going from bit part extra to stuntman to leading man, finding romance along the way with the studio's hottest actress. But just as he's becoming the most popular star in Hollywood, his old gang arrive in town and threaten to reveal everything about Dan's past.
1: Imagine our little Danny being invited to all the swell weekend parties at Malibu Beach and
2: the big social doings in Beverly Hills.
0: Couldn't you arrange to get some of your old friends a look in at one of them shindigs? (laughs) We'd like to see their sights. No, no, that'd
2: be impossible, Smiley. If the cops got one look at me with you guys, I'd be sunk.
1: Oh, we know that. We wouldn't want to see that happen to you. We're proud of you. We're always glad to see a pal make good. Now listen, Dan. What Smiley meant was this. that We thought maybe you could invite us to the homes of the movie stars so we could kind of look around. And with an introduction from you, that'd be all we'd need.
2: Uh Uh-huh. An introduction for me, huh? Mm. Well, now listen to this and listen carefully. I've been doing all right in this movie, Racket, and I'm still on the climb. And I did it all myself without any help from you. When I did need your help and needed it badly, what did you do? You blew town with my 5,000 bucks. Well, I don't need you now. So my advice to you is to get out of town and get out quick.
3: (laughs) To be honest, the main storyline in this film, that of Dan trying to escape the past that has come back to haunt him, is completely secondary to the far more whimsical story of Dan trying to make it in Hollywood, which takes up most of the film and it's better for it. The scenes of Cagney dressed as a red Indian in the low ranks of a cheap western and playing one of the prisoners in a prison riot movie are absolutely delightful and you get a real sense of what it was to make a movie in those days. It was very much a production line atmosphere. Workers were shipped from one set to the next and told to jump or fight or run in a western before being given a hat and a tunic and told to charge in the Revolutionary War. The whole film, therefore, spends a great deal of time as a smart satire on Hollywood itself, which was a complete surprise to me when I first watched it. There are also some broad comedy strokes from Cagney. At a Hollywood party, he orders a crate of monkeys for a birthday present, and they run riot around this palatial house. And there's another superb scene where he eats handfuls of garlic before he's about to perform a love scene with his leading lady. It's really funny stuff, and again, quite unexpected.
0: I
2: live only for you, I breathe only for you. Darling, and why do you turn away? Oh, do tell me that you love me.
0: It's
4: all so sudden. I, I can hardly speak.
2: You cry when we are so happy?
4: It's the moonlight. The fragrance of the night. It overwhelms me.
3: At only 76 minutes, it's surprising that a little yarn like this has the time to tell such a varied story. It's really great stuff. Plus, Cackney is reunited with Mae Clark, just Two years previously, he'd smashed a grapefruit into her face in the public enemy. Well, here, they get another raucous scene together, where he drags her out of his apartment by the hair and throws her into the hall. It's done in a rather more light-hearted way, and it sounds a lot more shocking than it turned out. But still, you have to wonder if it was put there just to capitalize on the infamous grapefruit scene. All in all, a complete surprise of a film. One that definitely leans more towards comedy and thrills, but actually ends up providing both, as well as a whole bucket of charm. Really wonderful early Cagney, definitely seek it out if you can. Next up is the rather unimaginatively titled Great Guy from 1936. So Cagney starts here as Johnny Cave, an awesomely named weights and measures inspector in New York, whose job it is to travel around the city and make sure that the many merchants residing therein aren't ripping off their honest patrons by using fake scales and things. It's more exciting than it sounds. Of course, it doesn't sound like much, cheeseling just just a few ounces of meat on the pound or a few potatoes
2: out of the sack. But understand this. Forty percent of the American income is spent on food. And if people are cheated out of only five percent, in one year, that adds up to more than the war debt. That's a big job. Big racket we're fighting. People on the other side of the fence have a great deal at stake, and they want to make it very tough for you. So if there are there any of you who are uh, a little bit afraid to
3: tackling it, now's the time to walk. Thanks. That makes it unanimous. So Johnny heads up a team of inspectors that are in the process of cleaning up all the little swindles in the city, such as selling four pounds of sugar as five pounds and putting lead weights inside chickens so they can sell them as heavier. But Johnny and his team are so effective at shutting these rackets down that he soon approached with a large bribe on behalf of the city's crime bosses. And before he knows it, he's squaring off against a horde of corrupt merchants and politicians.
2: three pennies? For what? Come on. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme. Give yeah. Three penny. Now, just to prove that they don't mean a thing. See? You lost three pennies. You don't miss them, do you? Well, that all depends. I'll show you what, what I mean. mean. See? You lost a hat. You don't miss it, do you? Now, listen, Johnny. We can do things for you or to you. You mean you'll do to me what you did to Joe Green? I'll take it easy. Now, listen. I'll try to heat on for anybody who threatens my men but find slip money on my desk blotter. Is on Waterway
3: Street, Havana, and a new startup going to make me come down. The problem is that the head of the racketeers is Abel Canning, his girlfriend Janet's boss and someone that she loves like a father. Great Guy doesn't have the right to be as fun as it is. First up, it was made by Grand National Pictures, who were a fledgling studio who just happened to get lucky. Cagney had just gone through a painful breakup with Warner Brothers, and Grand National swooped in and secured his services, offering him the chance to produce two films of his choice, and this is one that he opted for. Grand National were not as cash-rich as the major players, though, They were more of a poverty row studio, although they did attract a few decent licenses. They made movies with Boris Karloff and Tex Ritter, the singing cowboy, and a couple of movies featuring The Shadow. Cagney obviously had a good eye for a yarn, though, because Great Guy is exactly the kind of movie he'd been making for Warner Brothers, the tale of his stubborn white knight who refuses to be beaten down by rich, corrupt officialdom. A complete cliché in anyone else's hands, but the absolutely perfect role... For fiery, red-headed, wisecracking Jimmy Cagney. Seriously, James Cagney could play a cat food quality tester, and it would be one of the best films ever made. Great Guy is way more fun than you think it's going to be. There are some beautifully drawn characters in this thing, from Cagney's punchy little investigator to May Clark's Janet, a wise-cracking gal Friday, and James Burke as Aloysius, Cagney's Irish right-hand man, and Edward Brophy as Riley, a rich philanthropist who's squarely on Cagney's side. Brophy, incidentally, was a fabulous character actor. Usually played a gangster and supplied the voice of Timothy Mouse in Disney's Dumbo. Awesome guy. Anyway, if you like it short and sweet, light on misery and heavy on Cagney, then check out Great Guy. Just like Cagney himself, it punches well above its own weight. Next up, a radical change of pace for Cagney, who was squarely in the midst of his tough-guy roles. He joined forces with director Raoul Walsh in 1941 and came out with The Strawberry Blonde, a romantic comedy set in 1890s New York about a hot-tempered little dentist named Biff Grimes who falls in love with the neighborhood sweetheart, Virginia Brush, the strawberry blonde of the title, played by Rita Hayworth.
2: Hey, fellas! Here comes a strawberry blonde. Two, four,
0: six, eight. Who do we appreciate? On my way, sister? I love my wife, but oh, you kid. You want to know you're out? For her, I take out citizenship papers. Watch me get it. There's nothing like selling a ticket to a charity boat ride to get acquainted. Let Biff go. He's your
2: salesman now. Oh, gosh, I couldn't ask her for money.
3: Virginia is a mercenary little imp, though, and has her sights set on Hugo Barnstead, Biff's friend, who looks set to make a fortune in his political career. In order to get rid of Biff, Virginia sets him up with her friend, Amy, an outspoken, chain-smoking, radical-thinking feminist, played by Olivia de Havilland. Just the type of girl that the Victorian-minded, chauvinistic Biff hates with a passion.
0: Hey!
2: Don't tell me you smoke! Only when I'm born. Well, your mother a bloomer girl, you a nicotine fiend. Are there any more at home like you?
4: I have an aunt who's an actress.
2: Well, that completes the picture. Look, I've been around. They can say an awful lot of things about Biff Grimes, but not that he ever gave a cigarette to a girl.
4: Stop! Stop it!
2: I guess they must be engaged.
4: Why? Because she let him kiss her?
2: Sure. Would you let a boy kiss you you weren't engaged to?
4: If he was charming and nice-looking, I certainly would.
2: Well, what can you expect from a?
4: Girl who smokes, whose mother wore bloomers, and whose aunt's on the stage.
2: I uh, I guess a little kiss is harmless if it's uh, all in fun.
4: Even if it isn't in fun. You mean? Exactly.
2: Well, wouldn't you like a nice young man to marry you someday?
4: No, not particularly.
2: So you don't believe in the institution of marriage?
4: An outmoded, silly convention, started by the cavemen and encouraged by the florists and jewelers. After all, what's marriage?
2: Well, wouldn't you like to have a home and kids?
4: Why, certainly I would, but that doesn't mean you have to go through all the... You, you... mean... exactly.
3: Hugo and Virginia end up married, and as a consolation prize, Biff ends up marrying Amy. But as life goes on for both couples, it soon becomes apparent that even though Biff and Amy are polar opposites, and that Virginia is far more glamorous than Amy, Biff actually got the best of the deal. I won't say any more about the film because I don't want to spoil it. It does sound like a rather conventional plot on paper, but The Strawberry Blonde turns out to be a highly unconventional romantic comedy that swings into some rather dark areas at times. The first section of the film is a wildly knockabout affair with horses and carriages and punch-ups and romantic strolls and larger-than-life Irishmen and bottom-pinching and some hilarious slapstick comedy from Cagney. There's a great scene where he practices his dentistry on his dad.
2: Which tooth hurts? Well, they all hurt. Well, I can't pull them all. I won't know how to do that for another 12 lessons at least and you know I get only one letter a month. Well, couldn't we hurry that up with a few special deliveries? Now, will you stop being a pussy, willow? Which tooth do you want pulled? Oh, I don't care. Take your pick, I'm not playing any favorites. What do you want to do, play eeny, meeny, miney, moe? No. Well, lean back. Oh, no, wait a minute, Biff. What's the matter now? Well, just a minute, don't you think we ought to have one last little look at the letter? There may be a typographical error. If there is, we'll find out soon enough. Now, lean back and inhale into this thing. <laughs> 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 What's the matter? Oh, There's oh, nothing of the matter. <laughs> What's well, so funny? Oh, there's nothing so funny. Oh. Well, what are you laughing at? Oh, I don't know. Unless it's because I'm looking at your face. Well, you've been looking at it for years. It was never funny before. That's right. Oh, Cliff, there's something wrong. I'm getting sillier by the minute. Oh, you're all right. Oh. It says here, that's the way it acts on a lot of people. It says here, in a minute, you'll be unconscious. Biffy, hmm? I don't think I'm unconscious. It says here, you're unconscious. Oh, Biffy, maybe I am, but I doubt it. What, are you want to make a liar out of the letter? Now here, take another whiff of this, huh? You're a fine one to practice on. Now here, I promise you, won't hurt a bit. Oh! Why, you clumsy left-handed son of a street cleaner, what is it you're trying to do, kill your old man for the insurance?
3: We then move on to the married years, where Hugo turns out to be more of a snake than it first appeared. Biff is ground down numerous times by his former friend, and each time, it's Amy that picks him back up. It has to be said, Olivia de Havilland is exquisite in the film. Her sense of comedy timing is perfect. She is always right on cue with a wink and a grin, and she becomes the real heart of the film. Of course, it belongs lock, stock and barrel to Cagney, who is quite simply magnificent in this film. But the whole thing wouldn't be the same without Olivia de Havilland. It's a film that I wasn't much bothered about for a long time. The idea of a period romantic comedy simply didn't appeal much to me, even though James Cagney was in it. It's since become one of my favourite films of all time. Cagney is so, so good in this. From the way he literally starts a fist fight with everyone and keeps getting black eyes to his little hairpin catchphrase all the way through the film.
2: I'll fix him. I don't take nothing from nobody. That's the kind of a hairpin I am.
3: It is so much fun. So genuinely funny and emotional and exciting and charming, beautifully produced beautifully performed, and one of James Cagney's finest and most unconventional acting jobs. A brilliant, brilliant film. Surrender a Sunday afternoon to it, and I guarantee you'll fall in love with it just as much as I did. Well, when it comes to radio appearances, Cagney made a few, but he wasn't as prolific as some other stars of the day. He did, in fact, appear in a very abridged version of the Strawberry Blonde for the Screen Guild Theatre. But to be honest, if you hear this extremely shortened version, you may not feel it necessary to seek the film out. The radio play does the film no justice at all. So instead, I've dug a little deeper and come up with another radio appearance he made. This was for radio's outstanding theatre of thrills, Suspense, upon which he appeared a couple of times. This is an episode entitled No Escape, a clever little tale that I hope you'll enjoy. I will see you on the other side. Suspense.
0: Autolite and its 60,000 dealers and service stations bring you Radio's outstanding theater of thrills. Starting tonight, Mr. James Cagney in Anton Leder's production of No Escape. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
2: The only thing I can do now is tell you how it happened. Without any bunk. I don't care what you've heard or read about me. I'm not a devil or a mad dog. I don't know what people think happens to a fella. Do they think all of a sudden I turn into stone? I'm no different than anybody else. If I don't eat, I get hungry. If I cut myself shaving, I bleed. I'm just like the next guy, and that's the whole idea. This, this, it happened to me, sure, but it would have happened to anybody. It could have happened to you. It was supposed to have been one of them days you circle on the calendar with a red pencil... You see, with a little town like ours, 23 miles from the big city, right on the main highway, we get the speed artists going both ways. Yeah, and every couple of days they manage to leave something behind to remember them by. Like a kid with a broken back or, well, Well, you get the idea. So a couple of years ago, the Chamber of Commerce started a safety campaign to name the safest driver of the year. Something to kind of keep the guys on their toes. And this year, the fellow they chose for the award was yours truly. And tonight was the big doings with a few well-chosen words from me, a lad... Was a public speaker, was a wonderful bus driver. I got to the house a little after six. Teddy, uh, my kid brother, was just leaving. Hi, you Big Shot. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen. In this corner, the world's champion driver. <laughs> <laughs> that's me, all right. Hey, that's a swell picture of you in the paper. You don't look so bad for an older man. Right, well. Beat your ears (laughs) in Say, Eve called to say you should wear your blue suit And try to look human That I would like to see Me too (laughs) Sorry, I can't wait though I'm late for a dig. I'll see you in the morning and you can tell me how you slayed All right, Ted So long I gave myself the works Shower, shave, the blue suit like the lady said (laughs) Eve looked after me like I was at least five years old I didn't mind a bit Ever since Ma died in 42, I kept the house going for Teddy Because a kid needs something like that But he was getting out of school in June, and then maybe Eve and I... Well, it was nice thinking about it. So nice that I guess I forgot all about the time that was passing. Yeah?
4: Look, slow motion, you should be halfway over here by now.
2: (laughs) Okay, Eve, honey. Got the speech ready?
4: Yes, but if you don't get moving, you'll be making that speech to a bunch of empty chairs and dirty
1: plates.
2: Yes, Mama. Be right over. Eve lived outside of town. I'd really have to step on it to pick her up and spend some time rehearsing the speech. I'd then get to the high school auditorium by eight. I got into the car, and I decided to take the canyon road through the hills where there wasn't any traffic. I could make better time that way. Now, wait, wait, wait just a second. Let me get my thoughts together. i got to get this part exactly right. You've got to see it just like it happened, or else it's all a waste of time. All right. was on the canyon road that wound up through the steep hills, the wall of the mountain on one side of the road, and the deep canyon on the other, about about ten to seven, but already dark. Nobody on the road with me, so I stuck pretty close to the middle, and every time, at every turn, the scream of the tires, but I wasn't worried about that. Four brand new tires, hardly a week old, and good brakes. I never take chances with things like that. Going about, about 50 miles an hour, maybe a little bit better, but I was all alone on the road, so what difference did it make? I was maybe two-thirds of the way up to the top. Right where the road makes a wide curve. I remember I, I put a cigarette in my mouth and I pushed the dashboard lighter in. I heard the lighter click and I started reaching for it. And then a pair of headlights blazing out of nowhere. And then a, a, a screeching horn, a car coming the other way. I felt my inside double up like a fist. I slammed my foot on the brake, swung the steering wheel to the right. I didn't feel anything hit and I thought, oh God, it's going to be Okay. I jammed on the emergency. I jerked the door open. And I look back. The road was empty. I saw hide the horn but f- far away, and another sound too, like a bunch of empty crates toppling over and over. And at first, it didn't register with me. For maybe maybe half a second, I just stood there wondering what happened. Then I saw the reflection of the flame lighting up the whole canyon. I went to the side of the road and looked down. The car was about five hundred feet below, burning. And the horn still blasting away like the driver's body had fallen against it. I started down the canyon. It was almost, almost straight down. I fell and I rolled and I came to my feet again. Why didn't that horn stop? Why didn't it stop? And then, then it did stop. And I realized that I had stopped. I had stopped too. What was I waiting for? To get my wind, that's all. I, I went down another few feet. And then... And I stopped again, holding myself against the tree. Come on. Come on, Harry. Get going. No. No. What good would it do to get down there? I couldn't help who I was in that car. It was too late. Nobody could help. And far down the road, I saw another pair of headlights starting the long climb. I went back to my car. I told myself I was going for help. I drove on to the top of the hill... There was a little gas station They'd up, up, up a phone. I was almost there. An old fellow in white overalls was putting around the pumps. I started slowing down. My whole life was about to be smashed. I'd have to tell them the truth and what good would it do? What about Eve? What about my kid brother Teddy? What's more important than a man's own family? I'd reached the gravel driveway, the gas station. The old guy heard me coming and started straightening up. Now, now, I swung back onto the highway and pushed the accelerators to the floor. Eve's house a little before 730. It was funny. I thought I was okay until I reached for the door handle. And then my fingers seemed to go dead and my heart stopped, started going a mile a minute.
4: Harry, is that you?
2: That's me. Sorry, Sorry I'm late, Eve.
4: Where in heaven's name have you been? Honestly, if you aren't the most aggravate, Harry Graham. What? Look at you. You look like you've been run through a threshing machine.
2: Yeah, I know. Let's go in and out. I'll clean up a little.
4: Well, what in the world happened?
2: <clears throat> uh, I had a flat tire. I had to change it on the road.
4: Flat tire? Oh, fine. All right, wait right here. I'll get the whisk room. Of all things to happen tonight. All right, all
2: right. Happen. Lay you up, will you? Harry. Oh, I'm sorry.
4: Well, don't just stand there. While I'm doing this, take your comb out and start combing your hair.
2: Hmm. Took my comb out and turned toward the whole mirror. Honey. I didn't look any different than yesterday or the day before that. I was still Harry Graham. After, after he finished with me, we went back to the car. Get in.
4: I tell you what, you're so upset anyhow. Why don't you let me drive into town?
2: Okay, if you want to.
4: See now, I turn left at the next block, don't I, for the canyon road? Canyon road? Yes, we can save some time going that way. No,
2: no. Huh? No. No, I, I don't want to go to that canyon road. I want you to go the regular way. But we're going to be late. Do what I tell you. I'll drive the car myself. But, Harry, we always... Do what I tell you, Eve.
4: All right. I I'll have to bite my head off. What have you got against Canyon Road?
2: It's, it's too dangerous at night.
4: Well, all I've got to say is that when they picked you for the safest driver of the year, Harry Graham, they really hit the jackpot.
2: We got to the high school auditorium just a couple of minutes late. But as it turned out, we weren't the only ones late. When we got to the main table, I saw that the chair next to mine was empty. Police Chief Blake, who was supposed to introduce me for my speech, hadn't showed up yet. And they, then when the dinner was ended, Chief Blake came through the door, and he looked awful. He went over to the chairman of the meeting and whispered something, pointing at me. And then, then he started for me, and I, I thought my heart would quit beating. I was looking for a way to escape, maybe when... Hello, Harry. Oh, uh, hello, Chief. Folks!
0: Folks, please. I'm sorry I'm
2: so late. I've just come from Canyon Road. Another terrible accident. Car went over the canyon. Four people killed and burned.
0: We still haven't gotten
2: them out of the wreckage. It looks like they were forced off the road. Another dirty hit-and-run case. My boys are up there now looking for traces of this other car. I don't have to tell you that we're going to keep on looking till we find out who it was. That's why I had one of my boys bring me back to town here to this meeting tonight. Because now it's even more important to let a fellow like our friend Harry Graham here know we appreciate his good work and wish to the saints there were more like him. Yes, after what I just saw on Canyon Road, I'm really proud of Harry Graham.
0: For suspense, Autolite is bringing you Mr. James Cagney in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Hap, this show hits with the zing of a set of Autolite resistor spark plugs. It gets me right between the optics. I know. I've been doing a little research. Yes?
2: Yes. The frigid facts on faulty driving should dispel the optical illusions of any automobile driver foolish enough to relax his vigilance for one single moment. Every 30 seconds, a man, woman, or child is injured on our streets or highways. This year, 32,300 people are doomed to death. By Cornelius Hap, I never stopped to realize. You know, Harlow, it takes 10 seconds and 336 feet to stop a car traveling at 60 miles an hour? That's why brains are more important than brakes. Why, the man behind the wheel should beware of the speed at which he's driving. Why, safe and sane are synonymous words to drivers who value their fellows' lives as well as their own. In other words, Hap, just because auto light resistor spark plugs give your car more pep, don't try to
0: use all of it, eh? Exactly, Harlow. But there's more. The good Samaritan is the gracious guy or gal who not only knows and keeps the rules of the road, but also keeps his temper in his head when some bungling Benny gives him the hog, the road hog treatment. Yes,
2: Hap, it's sad but true that one right way to wrong driving is to always demand your
0: highway rights. Be sure to be safe. Right, Harlow. And now, let's get back to suspense. And now, Autolite brings back to our Hollywood soundstage, Mr. James Cagney as Harry in No Escape, a tale well calculated to keep you in Suspend. I,
2: I had to keep my eyes on the table. I couldn't even look at the chief as he stood there praising me. All I could see was that burning wreck at the foot of the cliff, and all I could hear was that awful horn blowing. I had to bite my lips to keep from screaming. I did it, Harry. Oh. Harry, what? Oh what? Open your peak, son. We'd like to hear a few words from you. Yeah, well, Look, uh, look, Chief, folks, uh, I don't think anybody wants to listen to me tonight. Uh, please, let's forget it. No, Harry. Now more than ever, we should hear what a fellow like you has to say. Come on, Harry. Uh, hey, go oh, uh, a... Listen, listen. Uh... Go on, Harry. Oh, well, all right. I'm, a, I'm afraid I'm no, I'm no great shakes as a speech maker. Just a lucky thing my girl's a good English teacher.
0: <laughs> I, uh,
2: I don't believe we should honor a man for safe driving any more than we should honor him because he's never killed anyone with a gun. Oh, uh, when, a, when a man gets behind the wheel of a car He doesn't give up his responsibilities to his fellow men No one can escape the, 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 uh, the responsibility of being his brother's keeper And, and that goes for... That goes for... That's... Harry, what's wrong? Listen Harry... to me How can I stand up here and read a speech After what, after what Chief Blake just told us No, I can't do it I'm sorry I can't do it. Uh, I guess Harry's right after all, folks. I guess maybe we just better call the meeting off. I know, I've got to get back to Canyon Road as soon as I can. Come on, Eve. Come on. Let's get out of here. All right, honey. Oh, Harry. Yeah, Chief. Uh, you can do me a big favor. huh? fellow brought me down here. had to beat it right back to the accident. Oh, so? Uh, I've got to get back there myself right away. Hmm. Can you give me a lift? Uh, well, I, sh- I sure like to Chief. But, well, I've got, to, I've got to get Eve home.
4: Well, you could take me home by the way of Canyon Road. We've gone that way before, honey. But
2: uh, I'd uh, be much obliged to you, Harry. Well, you see, Chief, it's... Harry. Okay, okay, let's go. Uh, it's too bad the meeting had to end like this. But I have a hunch you feel like I do, Harry. Like you can't sit still till you find the rat who killed those people. Well, I promise you this, Harry. Whoever he is, we'll get him. Yeah, wasn't that one for the book? Less than two hours after my accident with the other car going over into the canyon, I was back on Canyon Road. Only this time with Eve sitting behind me and the chief of police in back. Harry, if you don't mind, could you step on a little bit? I I promise you I won't give you a ticket. Okay, Chief.
4: Honey, push the lighter in, will you?
2: Lighter? For my cigarette. Oh, sure, sure. This speed be better, Chief? Fine.
4: Harry hates this road. I wanted him to take it earlier tonight.
2: That's yeah, all right if you got good tires. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. Had four brand new ones put on just last week. Oh, here here's your light, Eve. Eve.
4: Huh? Oh. Thanks.
2: Oh. Her voice didn't sound right. Her voice didn't sound right. And then I remembered. When I picked her up tonight, I told the reason I was so messed up was that I'd had to change a tire. She was thinking about that now. I knew she was, trying to figure out why I'd lied to her. Nobody said anything after that. When we reached the part of the road just before it made the big bend, I started slowing down. I uh, hope I got you here quick enough, Chief. Yeah, you did fine.
4: Is this where it was? Yeah,
2: just around this bend. Yeah, that's right.
4: But how did... Huh? N-
2: nothing. Again, again, I'd said the wrong thing. What was the matter with me? How was I supposed to know that that action was around the bend? I was cutting my own throat, but now. Now I'd made the turn, and there was the red flag burning on the road, and a big crash truck at the edge of the canyon, and police cars blocking the highway. Just pull over the side, Harry. Okay. Ah, they're coming down there, Fraser. Oh, oh hello, Chief. You ready to start bringing them up soon? That's, uh... That's a walkie-talkie he's working with? Yeah. He keeps contact with the men down the canyon. Say, Harry, why don't you come along with me and really see how's, how we work here? Oh, thanks, but I've, I've got to get Yvonne home. The teacher has got, got to get up early. Isn't that right, baby?
4: I don't mind waiting if you'd like to stay.
2: Huh? Yeah, come along, Harry. Oh, but, uh...
4: I don't mind waiting, Harry.
2: Hmm. Now... Now it was me against all of them. Oh, I was sick about that car down there in the canyon, those four bodies inside. But, well, nothing could change that now. And I was fighting for my own life. And they wouldn't break me down. I stood with my foot on the bumper and Chief Blake leaning against the fender of my car while his boys gave him their reports about the hit-and-run car. And it didn't bother me a bit. Two of them told about the plastic cast they made of a tire mark they found on the road. Uh, does it help you any, Chief? Uh, not much, Harry. No tire. A lot of people have new tires. <laughs> you, for instance. <laughs> yeah. I kicked my new front tire for them. Kicked it hard. They brought over an old fellow in white overalls, the guy in the service station where I'd almost turned in to report the accident. The chief asked him if he thought the car I'd seen was a hit-and-run.
0: It must have been, just about that time, you know. The way this fella skidoodled away for no reason at all. I don't know what kind of a car it was, though. A black sedan, I'd say. <laughs> like this one, maybe? Uh, uh, well, might be, might be that. But it it's too dark to be sure.
2: Well, first thing tomorrow, I'm going to get myself a green convertible, yeah. <laughs> and everybody got a good laugh out of that. But I would have to be careful; mustn't go too far. It was me against all of them, and I felt the kind of excitement that a guy might get from walking a tightrope. Thinking back now, it sure seems screwy, but that—that's how I felt. And maybe that is the worst thing that happens to a guy in my spot—the way it turns you into a wild animal against the world. Hey, yeah, Charlie. It was the fellow with the walkie talkie over near the crash truck. We're ready to start bringing up the bodies. Okay. Come on, Harry. Let's go over. Something flopped coldly in my stomach. And then lay still. This was the test. If they didn't break me down now, they could never do it, never in a million years. All the people who'd come up from the town started gathering around the crash truck. I wanted to run and never stop running. But I didn't move. And just then first body swung into view. And you could hear everyone in the crowd suck in his breath. And I bit down hard on my lip till I tasted blood. A brown blanket wrapped neatly around something. And then the bundle rested on the ground. And everyone seemed to edge away from it like it could hurt them. And the cable went down into the valley again. And then there was a second bundle. And then... It was a third, and then a fourth. And over and over, like a beat like a prayer, I told myself they wouldn't break me down. And then someone pushed forward from the crowd. Joe Mandel. The little tailor. He seemed shy and embarrassed, as though he had no business being here. Uh, uh, Chief. Chief Blake. Huh? Oh, yeah, Joe. Uh, my boy, Philip. He, he didn't come home for supper tonight, and I... You, you want to look... Uh... Well, you know how a woman is. Rose will feel better if I tell her, okay, I looked, and it wasn't... Well, you know. All right, Joe. Doesn't hurt, man. Thank you. No. I... No. I... I'd better go back to my Rose. I... Sorry, Joe. I. Uh, w- wait a minute. Yes. Do you know who Phil was going to be with tonight? His best friend was Mike Roebuck. They were always together. The Goldust twins, everybody called them. Thanks, Joe. Excuse me, Chief. I must go to Rose now. Fraser! I asked you. Get back to town. Go to the Roebucks. Don't tell them anything is wrong. Just see if Mike's home. Okay. I couldn't take anymore. I started back for the car. My legs felt like they weighed a ton. I heard a sudden movement in the crowd behind me. Oh, no!
1: Oh, my baby! My baby!
2: They wouldn't break me down. They wouldn't break me down. I opened the car door. And Eve was there. I'd almost forgotten her, and I was sure she knew the truth.
4: They brought up all four. Yeah, Harry.
2: I, I don't. I don't want to hear anything now. I'm taking you home. Wait, Harry. Listen, I'm telling you.
4: Kiss me, Harry. Huh? Hold me and kiss me.
2: I'm such a stupid fool. Hold me, hold all me. All right, all right. Now, now, stop it, stop it, Harry. If you knew what's been going through my mind. Okay, okay. Stop it. Just a fool, a stupid fool.
4: Then when I saw you come back to the car, the look on your face. Oh, Harry, how could I have ever thought?
2: No, all right, all right. Now, we'll talk about it later.
4: I'll never talk about it again. Never, Harry. (laughs)
2: Okay. God, I wasn't proud. I felt rotten and sick. And now that it was all over, the strength ran out of me like water running out of a glass. But what good would it have been to crucify myself? It wouldn't have changed anything. I wasn't a bad guy. It could have happened to anybody. And now, now I was going to be able to take care of my own, Eve, and my kid brother Teddy. Was that a bad guy? A fellow who wanted to do right for his family? I started the car. I put in gear and and looking at me through the windows... was Chief Blake... signaling me to wait. I turned the key off. Well... Whatever it was... I was very tired. Come on out, Harry. uh, I've got to get Eve home. Come on out of the car. But, But Harry... Do like I tell you. Come with me. What do you want? Come with me. You drove up here tonight, I... I didn't think it would end like this. You know about it? You of all people, Harry. Listen, you've got to believe me. It shouldn't have happened to a fella like you. You've got to hear my side. Right here, Harry. Huh? Huh? What are you... Take a look at... This fourth body... Why should I? Pull the blanket back, Harry. Oh, no. No. Daddy. Daddy! it. The whole works. I don't care what you heard or read in the papers. That's the story, just like it happened. No bunk. And thinking back, I I guess I kind of hit the nail on the head in that speech that I made that night. You know, that part about no man can ever escape the responsibility of being his brother's keeper.
3: the peerless James Cagney in No Escape for Suspense Cracking Stuff. He's so good, isn't he? Before I sign off, I would just like to play something for you. James Cagney's best friend throughout his life was fellow actor Pat O'Brien, who starred alongside Cagney numerous times, most notably, of course, as Father Jerry in Angels with Dirty Faces. Well, in 1981, Michael Parkinson, one of Britain's most respected interviewers, had the honor of talking to James Cagney and Pat O'Brien on his show. In
0: 1926 in Asbury Park, New Jersey, I was playing in a stock company, a lowly young actor, trying to get a break along the way, on a donut hunt for a long time. <laughs> and there was a play that came through Asbury and wrote to Broadway. The name of this play was Women Go On Forever with Mary Boland. And I'd been told there was a young fellow in it who would look like a future starter for this lad and that I'd read things about him. I don't know, I just made up my mind I wanted to meet him. And I went backstage and, you know. Of course Jim and I, you see, Jim is a complete introvert. I'm an extrovert. I'm an Irish show-off. I like to be on all the time. <laughs> so I took a shot in the dark, hoping that I wouldn't meet this fellow. And he was just as kindly then, and as wonderful as he is today. And uh, it was 1926, and it's a friendship that's endured for 55 years.
1: But is it true that, that you talked there about being different? One of the stories I heard was that you used to go out all night and still up on the town, and he used to go to bed early. <laughs> is that
0: true? Sure. Does it still happen? Oh no. oh no! No, you know, thirty-one and eighty-one. There's a lot of difference. Believe it. What about the, the two of you? You, you were, oh, um, both around at that time in in America with the with
1: That was a gangster, the for real, wasn't it? Do you did you meet any real gangsters, the two of you?
0: I had a funny thing happen. I was looking at a horse show up in Connecticut, and uh, I think I told you this Pat, about the kid, a little red-haired kid, who was freckled all over his face came up and stood alongside of me. Didn't know him. Never saw him before. And I said, hello, son. He said, well, did you, didn't you? (laughs) I said, did I, didn't what? He said, well, did you, didn't you? I said, I don't know what you're talking about, son. What is it? Did you go yellow when you went to the chair that time? (laughs)
3: would have given anything to have been in that room. Well, that's the show for this week. Thank you for joining me. Now, I know many of you will probably be wondering how many Fabergé eggs to send to me for my birthday. But you know what? I'd much rather have an iTunes review. So if you'd like to give me a birthday present, please take a moment out of your day and leave a review for this show and for The Secret History of Hollywood. And I shall chink a glass to you on the 17th of July on behalf of myself and Mr. Cagney. Also, there's still time to vote for the secret history of Hollywood at UKpodcasters.com. I'll drop a link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Bye for now.